The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The preaching text for this morning is Psalm 45, if you would like to go ahead and turn to Psalm 45. It says this, To the choir master, according to Lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your lord. Bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the peoples. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that it's through myriad circumstances and trials that each one of us are here this morning. Some of us are suffering with things that we have never disclosed to anyone else. Some of us, our hearts are ready to burst wide open with joy and praise. And probably many of us are somewhere in between those two things. But wherever it is, whether we are in the midst of trial and longing and suffering and pain, or in the midst of joy, we give our hearts to you. Father, we pray for our hearts to be lit on fire this morning. We pray that through your Spirit, communicating your word to us, living in us richly, that you would inspire praise in our souls, that it would burst out of our mouths with joy inexpressible. That we would not be able to contain the excitement that we have for being included in your family. I pray that in this worship service and in this sermon, that we magnify the name of Christ above all other names. 
that there would be no joy found in this life that would ever compare to the kind of joy that we find in Christ, in Christ alone. All of us are in various circumstances. Some of us come in distracted by myriad things, saddened beyond belief. And I pray that in this passage of Scripture, in this celebration, in this ceremony that we see before us in Psalm 45, we would find a treasure here, a magnifying glass upon the work of Christ, that it would cause us in our hearts to be overjoyed, that even in the midst of sorrow, we might be sorrowful yet rejoicing in what you have done for us in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? That question is the one that the church strives to answer. We spend time thinking about it. We spend time asking that question, searching the scriptures to find the answer. What does it mean to be saved? We spend time preaching on it. What does it mean to be saved? We spend time teaching on it. What does it mean to be saved? We spend time praying for it. Lord, would you demonstrate in me what it means to be saved, what it means to be called your child? We spend time turning it over one way or another, looking at it from multitude of directions so that we can be ready to give an account to anyone that asks us, what does it mean to be saved? But sometimes that answer is very hard to explain to someone, isn't it? Don't you find with as much as we talk about it, as much as we teach on it and preach on it and think about it, that it's often very difficult to explain to somebody when they ask us, what does it mean to be saved? See, far too many in our churches will answer that question with words of action. Even quoting words of Scripture. Repent. Confess. Believe. Be baptized. Or maybe more informally, Get your rear end in church. Pray. Read your Bible. When it comes down to it, those answers, though they are very helpful to answer the question, how do I grow in my faith? They are unfortunately law. What does it mean to be saved? Do this is false. That's not what it means to be saved. That's not what it means to be regenerate. Again, they're all good answers to the question, how do I grow in my faith? Now that I am saved, what do I do? Pray, repent, Read your Bible, believe, be baptized, confess. But I'm afraid there is something far more basic that we mean when we say someone is saved. This psalm, as I think you will be able to see, seems to have been originally written as a psalm of the celebration of the marriage of the king. Some say it was Solomon's marriage that this is celebrated. Was it his first marriage or his 700th marriage? We don't know. But they say, some, that it was about his marriage. Others argue that it was a different king altogether, and it was the, his marriage that was being celebrated here. But that doesn't matter as much as the fact that it's likely a hymn 
played around the festivities of a royal wedding. A king is getting married, and there is a queen fit for him to rule with him in his kingdom. And this is the hymn or the psalm played and sung around that ceremony. So when you and I read this, what are we supposed to make of it? Isn't that what we come to in the book of Psalms so often? And we've asked this question a number of times. Well, here I am reading a hymn, a psalm about a marriage ceremony, about a king that I don't know, in a place I've never lived, and a wedding ceremony I've never attended. And here I am in a New Testament church where I'm supposed to be celebrating and praising Jesus, and I'm reading about a marriage of a king? What am I supposed to do with this You see, the author here in this passage, in this psalm, extols the beauty of the king. He talks about everything from his handsomeness, to his gracious lips, to the smell of his clothes. He talks about the queen and the weave of her robes and the bridesmaids that follow along beside her. But if you've been following along at all, with us, as we've gone through First and Second Samuel, as we've gone through the Psalms for four or five years now, as we've gone through ten Psalms a summer, I think if you've been paying attention to all of that, and been paying attention to the introduction of this sermon, then you know that I think this psalm is more important for the Christian than merely an announcement of a wedding of a king who lived 3,000 years ago. This has more significance for your life today as a Christian than you might initially think. It's not a psalm about the importance of relationships. This is not a psalm about having a better marriage. This is not a sermon about how to have a better love life at all. That's not what you're going to get out of this. This psalm gets to the essence of what our salvation is in Christ. This psalm gets to the basis, the foundation, of what our salvation is in Christ. And you're, you're probably, hopefully you're thinking at this point, huh? How? Well, that's why you got to listen. All right. The psalm is divided into three parts. It's obviously written from the perspective of the wedding singer. He's the one composing this psalm. He's a son of Korah, which means he's a choir leader, essentially, or a, a, a chief singer, as it were. And he's the wedding singer here, and he's writing this psalm. So this first part is about the singer's own feelings. You see that in verse 1 and then in verse 17. His intro and his conclusion, that's straight from the wedding singer himself. But then the second part of this psalm is the singer's assessment of the king himself. He describes the king, who is also the groom in this case. And then the third is his invitation or his really his command to the queen who is also the bride. I guess technically she's the princess. She's the queen-to-be. She is the bride in this ceremony. So the wedding singer, the groom, and the bride. And we're going to go through each one of those. And the first thing that we're going to see here is the wedding singer's heart is overflowing with praise. The wedding singer's heart is overflowing with praise. Now you should have noticed, if you'll look in your text, put your eyes on the word that's there in the Bible you will have noticed this odd little announcement at the beginning of the psalm. This heading reads, To the choir master, according to Lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. That's inspired text too. Okay, That's not just something we skip or something we wrote in there later on. This is inspired text too. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. Now, two things stand out about that title. The first is it's a mascal, which that flies over our head. What in earth is a mascal? It basically means that it's a wisdom song where the musician 
is giving insight into something. He's explaining something, helping you understand something, a deeper meaning about something. And so therefore, this song is meant to be instructive for the congregation. It teaches the congregation something. They learn something about, in this case, the king and his wedding ceremony, as it were. So it's teaching the congregation that they're to do something based on the insight that this psalm gives. That's the first thing that should stand out to us. The second is that it's called a love song. Now that's weird because this is the only time in the Psalms that we have a psalm called a love song. Alright, so this comes to the surface right away here in verse 1 where he says this, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So this sets the tone for the entire psalm. It's a very brief introduction from the singer, the wedding singer. Very brief introduction, but it sets the tone for the whole song. This is not merely a psalm of praise to the king. This is a psalm that comes from deep within the singer's own heart. He means these words. This is not just, here's what we should think about all kings that get married, people. This is, I feel this very deeply, and I want you to feel it with me. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. These are not mere words that I don't mean. These are words that come from deep within my soul. I feel an excitement about this king, and I want you to feel that excitement too. I know what you might be thinking, some of you. I never feel that way about anything, much less a politician. Right? There's a whole lot of politicians out there. If I asked you to write a psalm about what's in your heart, it wouldn't come out like this, would it? It might come out with a lot more vitriol. It might be one of those imprecatory psalms, right? The cursing psalms. Psalms where you bring down a curse upon this person. And I get it. In America, first of all, we don't get the whole king thing, right? Our nation was founded because we pushed away from a king. So we don't understand the whole king aspect of this. So that is a foreign concept to us in total. But, but second, we're not used to speaking that way about really anyone. And, and I think I could probably speak for maybe a large percentage of the men in the congregation, we really don't like this kind of language. It's a foreign concept to us. If our wife is asking for a love letter, it probably wouldn't even come out like this, would it? Or if you read the Song of Solomon, my poems to my wife or my letters to my wife, they don't really sound like that. Especially now that we're already married, right? Yeah. Maybe dating, you want to put on airs, but not, not now. You know, now it's, it's a foreign concept to us altogether. But it's important to remember that the kind of praise for the king that he's teaching in this maskal is one where the choir who will be singing this song can sing his praise out of the overflow of the heart. That's what he's getting at more than anything. This comes from my heart. I want this to come from your heart too. Remember, other people are going to be singing this song. This is a a hymnal of the ancients, as it were. So the singer comes back at the end of the psalm in verse 17, and he says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So he's filled with happiness and with joy. Why? Because he finds the king worthy of praise. He finds the king worthy of praise. Look at verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. 
Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Two aspects of the king are brought to the light here. The first is his beauty. He is handsome inside and out. He looks like Brad Pitt, and he's a gracious person too. I mean, he's the whole package, ladies. This is a great man we're looking at here. And you can see that in the way that grace pours off his lips. In other words, he graciously deals with people. He graciously speaks with people. And so what are you to conclude if a person is beautiful on the inside and the out? God has really blessed them, right? Which is exactly what he gets to here in the psalm. But the second aspect that's elevated is his military might. He's also strong. Now keep in mind as we go through this, that what the psalmist is getting at here is hopeful optimism about the king's reign. This is what he wants to come to fruition in the reign of the king. So likely this is going to be sung again at the wedding ceremony, which is obviously toward the beginning of the king's reign. And so this song is a hopeful expectation about what the king will be. Now, if you, if you go throughout the ages of Jewish history and you look at the kings that came about in Judah, not a lot of them are anything to write home about, right? Some of them are wicked, absolutely terrible. Some of them are better than others, but many of them are abysmal. And this psalm is really, we think, sung at all the king's wedding ceremonies. So there is a hopeful optimism that comes with these words in the psalm. It's at the beginning of the king's reign when he's getting married to his queen. We're hoping that this is what his kingdom actually becomes. And you can see that here at the very beginning in verse 3. These are commands that he's starting off with. He doesn't say he has girded his sword on his thigh. He says, gird your sword. Or in verse 4, ride out victoriously. They're commands, they're imperatives. The king who is blessed by God goes into battle against the enemies of God with his sword and he fights for the cause of, what is it? Truth and meekness and righteousness? That's a bit odd, isn't it? Is that what you'd want your king to fight for? If around you are nations that are hoping to enslave you, is the nation going, we want you to fight with meekness? It's a bit odd. If you notice, he's not, they don't ask him to fight for Israel per se. He doesn't say, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of Israel, like you might expect. The king's mission is rather odd. He fights for truth and meekness, which doesn't seem to fight to mesh with the imagery of fighting, fight in meekness, and righteousness. And then in verse 5, he says he kills his enemies with arrows. That is the enemies of truth and meekness and righteousness. So, let's understand the, the picture that's being painted here. The picture is that the king, who has a, a godlike appearance and a godlike character, is to fight battles, not just any battles, but battles that God fights in the world. Truth. Meekness, righteousness. These are the battles God fights, and He's to go on fights, skirmishes, on behalf of God, to fight for God. Not for Israel per se, though that is what Israel is supposed to embody, truth and meekness and righteousness, but He's to fight 
God's battles, God's fights, which is truth and meekness and righteousness. So we get this description of the king in verse 6. And I want you to pay very close attention to the wording. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I want you to look very, very closely at verse 6. He starts out by saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Who's he talking to? Who's he talking about here? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He hasn't changed. He's still talking about the king that's getting married. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He refers to the king who has this godlike character going on the mission of God as God. And you can see this by paying really close attention to the pronouns here. Look at all the yous and the yours. The scepter of your kingdom you have loved. Therefore, God, now he's talking about God on high. God, your God, has anointed you. All the yous and yours are still the king. Does that strike you as a little bit of a problem? He just called the king God. That's weird. That seems idolatrous, doesn't it? On the surface, at least. So he doesn't talk about the creator of the universe until there at the end of verse 7. The yours don't change when he, where he calls the, the, him the king's God. And, and what has the king's God done? He has anointed him beyond his companions. So the picture in this psalm is of a king who is marrying his bride on their wedding day. And the temple singers are filled with joy. They're brimming with excitement over the expectations of what this king and his bride will bring to the world. And it's not mere military conquest. That's not what he's excited about. It's not gold, lots of gold, like most of the nations around you would expect would want riches. No, it's truth and meekness and righteousness. I want to ask you, where in human history has a country hoped like this that their king or the president would bring them truth and meekness and righteousness? What country hopes for meekness? We're right now in the midst of what seems to be a never-ending slew of campaigns. It's like we never get a break anymore, right? Amen, somebody. I want to ask you, are we, as we listen to the campaign slogans and the speeches, are we looking for meekness? Really. Be honest with yourself. We all know, all right? Are we looking for meekness? Or are we looking for the one who gets the most attention by slinging insults the hardest? It goes both ways. I, just be honest. What is it that really grips our attention? Is it when somebody comes out in meekness and humility? Or when somebody really punches the other side with a strong right hand? I'm not saying some people don't need to be slapped. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, which is it that we're actually looking for? I'm telling you, in human history, and if you go back into the political campaigns in America, for centuries we find this same thing. Who hits their opponent the hardest with the best insult? 
So already we have this weird picture. But to complicate matters more, this king is put on the level of God. Well, how can this possibly come about? The king is given a near impossible task of not only looking like God, but representing God in his battles, being an ambassador of meekness, and yet also going and fighting the king's enemies and, and trampling them underfoot. How is a king possibly going to accomplish this task that this wedding singer has put on him here on his wedding day? There are some events in life that completely change your view of everything. Fatherhood was this way for me. When our firstborn, Grayson, was born, he was born six weeks early, and it was an emergency situation. I got called from work, and, and was you know we didn't expect to have a, a baby in the world until six weeks later. And I get called from work, and, and even on the way, Andrea said, you know, why don't you pick up some Chick-fil-A because I'm hungry. And I'm like, okay, well, we, so that's, how, that's what we thought the day was like, right? So I picked it up and, and came in, and I'm sitting there eating my chicken sandwich when the doctor walks in and says, are you ready to be parents? And we're like, when? And she's like, in two minutes. And we were like, okay, I, I, well, I guess we don't have a choice, so I finished my chicken sandwich, of course. You don't want it to get cold. It doesn't taste the same. And so <laughs> we, we went in, and several minutes later, Grayson was born. And it was the weirdest, the weirdest feeling. I, 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 it's, I can't even, it's hard to explain. But I, in some ways, it wasn't real to me yet. It didn't, it didn't hit me. I, I didn't feel really any different, but it was this very surreal kind of feeling. Well, he's whisked off into the NICU, and I'm there with Andrea. I've only ever had to care for me and my wife, and so I'm standing by her bedside. Well, I've got a child in the NICU some distance away, and it, it still is not hitting me. And so, you know, we get visitors and things like that that are coming to the hospital, and I take one of the visitors in, and we're looking at Grayson, and it's still just a very surreal feeling having this child who's three pounds, 11 ounces, just super tiny, and in this little what incubator or whatever they call it, and uh, is sitting there, and the person that is visiting reaches out their hand and touches his head. And I cannot explain to you what happened, or it's hard to explain what happened, but it was like fire was lit inside me from the tips of my toes to the top of my head. A protective instinct that I did not know was there came out, and I had to wrestle it back in, lest I really change the relationship between me and this person, right? It changed right then, in that moment. I don't know why. There was nothing bad about touching the head of my child, but something in that moment changed in me, and I saw the world completely different. I saw the world through the eyes of a father. And nothing ever has looked the same since that day. And for whatever reason, that was the spark. And if you hear wives or, or mothers talk about mama bear coming out, you know, you know what I'm talking about. This is papa bear coming out, right? You know that, that feeling that I, I will never see the world the same. Well, in many ways... When Christ comes into the world and dies and then rises again, every person that believed in Christ never could look back at the Old Testament text and see it the same way again. Every single Old Testament text all of a sudden took on a height of new meaning. Everything from Genesis all the way to Malachi changed forever. Every single word all of a sudden had a depth to it that had never been perceived before. And this psalm is no different. All of a sudden, this psalm that was originally written as an optimistic psalm on the wedding day of a king that, yes, put before the king some, a, a lofty task, this psalm took on a whole new meaning. 
Because as you go back through the pages of Israel's history, you find no king ever lived up to his wedding song. No king ever lived up to Psalm 45. But the event of Jesus' death and resurrection all of a sudden turned the lights on on this psalm. Which is why the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1, 8-9. Pay close attention. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Do you see what he just did there? He took what was originally the king and changed it to say that was about the son. That was about the Christ. So quoting the psalm that we have this morning, Psalm 45, the author of Hebrews says that this statement by the psalmist wasn't about some generic king in Israel. It might have been in that day. It might have been to that people. He might have even been thinking that he was writing about that king that was getting married, the king of Israel. But in reality, God had much deeper plans for this psalm. It was about the Son, the true King, about Jesus who is coming into the world. Now there were lots of kings of Israel, and presumably it was read at all of their weddings. But as I said, none of them measured up to what was sung about them here on their wedding day. Until the genuine Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. The true heir of David came into the world and lived as God's true king. His cause was the embodiment of truth. He was the logos of God, the very word of God. He was the living embodiment of truth. And meekness and righteousness were his mission. He lived perfectly, a perfectly righteous life. And yet what did he do? He went meekly to the cross like a lamb before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth he in perfect meekness walked to the cross he died on the cross he suffered the punishment for the sins of his people so that he might uh, so that he might be made righteous by the life that he lived so that they might be made righteous by the life that he lived but he didn't just die He rose again like the triumphant king that he is. And now the good news of his kingdom goes out like an arrow into the hearts of his enemies. And as a result of the preaching of the gospel, the arrow that goes out and pierces the heart, some of them come to faith and some of them are trampled underfoot. You see what this psalm is actually getting at the true meaning in Christ that this psalm actually has, when you understand the good news of Jesus, God's true King coming to the world, you can't help but realize that all of Scripture is written in such a way that it made sense in their time. But in light of Christ, it takes on a whole depth of meaning that we had never before seen. It anticipated a future fulfillment when this Scripture would make more sense. So now, when the lights come on, we realize that the King in this passage is Jesus. So then, let me ask you. Now that the lights are on, and that we see the King that He's referring to, the true King, the living embodiment of this psalm, the one that this is really written and sung about, is Jesus, who is His Bride. Okay, now that the lights are on, finish the rest of the psalm. The rest of the psalm is written to the bride, starting in verse 10. Listen to it. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. 
Or Jesus might say, leave father and mother. And the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. You read the end of Revelation, that is that picture right there. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. His address to the queen is, you notice, not the same as it was to the king. He's not extolling her greatness because she's just that awesome. That's what he did with the king. But he doesn't do that with the bride, the queen. Forget your people and your father's house, he says, and the king will desire your beauty. The people come around and bring gifts to her because of her union with the king. Why do the nations stream to her, the bride of the king? Because she is united to the king. It's because of the king that she is beautiful. It's because of the king that she is adored. It's because of the king that she's gifted. But what is the price of admission to this union? What does he say in verse 11? Since he is your Lord. Bow to Him. Since He is your Lord, bow to Him. It takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? The bowing down here is like laying prostrate before someone in higher authority. It's it's used in the context of worship. This is not an average bride. This is not your average king. But let me ask you, is this what it means to be the bride of Christ? In other words, is this what it means to be saved? Is what is being described here a bride that comes before her husband in slavish obedience, bowing down in worship merely as a part of her obligations as a wife? Is that what is being described here? No, that's not even how the wedding party is led into the palace. In verse 14, she is in many colored robes. And they're led in with, what is it? Joy and gladness in verse 15. It's happiness. It's in happiness that she comes to bow down in worship. I fear that the message that we often send in our gospel is unintentionally, maybe, one of slavish obligation. This is your duty. This is what you are obliged to. Pray. Read your Bible. Come to church. Repent. Be baptized. Take the Lord's Supper. Believe. Do it. It's your obligation to do so. Again, a good answer to the question what do I do now that I am saved how do I grow how do I demonstrate to the Lord that I love him all of those things are wonderful ordinary means of grace by which the Lord grows us to maturity but I want you to pay very close attention to this psalm they all come from a heart that overflows with a pleasing theme. Is the psalmist coming here and saying these things? Is the bride expected to come in to the palace out of slavish obedience or out of joy? It's out of joy. He doesn't write this psalm because someone is standing over him with a whip saying, do it right 
Nor does he expect the queen to walk into the palace out of slavish obedience to the king, bow down to him. No. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. The words of praise. The words of prayer. The words of repentance. The outpouring of a profession of faith. The repentance that we want. The recognition of His Lordship. The bowing down before Him as King. The coming to church and the sitting in the pew and the singing of the songs that are on the screen behind us. The things that we continually come and do to grow. They come from a tongue like the pen of a ready scribe. All of those things... Faith, belief, repentance, singing, reading your Bible, praying, all of those regular means of grace are from the outpouring of a heart that has been changed to one that loves God truly. See, if we miss that, then when I say to you, pray, read your Bible, come to church, all that comes across is law. This is what you must do to be saved. But that's not true. What does it mean to be saved? It means that my heart has been forever changed. That now, all of a sudden, the lights have come on. And what have I seen? I have seen and truly believe that Christ has come as God's true King. That He went to the cross of Calvary and there He died for my sin. He suffered the wrath of God that I deserve. Though He did nothing to deserve that, He took my sin and the punishment for it on His own shoulders. And He lived a perfect life And instead of taking the righteous rewards that He deserved, He gave them to me out of His grace and His mercy. I did nothing to deserve them. He gave them to me. And now that I know that, that He not only did that, but then He rose from the grave and He promised to me that you too, by trusting in me, can have eternal life. I'm not the same. My heart has forever been changed. Nothing about me will ever be the same. Friend, you can come to Christ. Let me tell you. Many are invited to come into His kingdom. But the question then you have to ask is, how do I know salvation is mine? How do I know I am saved? In other words, what does it really mean that I am saved? It means that your heart is overflowing with joy at the thought of Jesus, your King. That you can take this Psalm 45, though you have probably never experienced this kind of emotion toward another person in your life, maybe, you can read that and you can look to the hill of Calvary and you can say, there on the cross, He died for me. And I'll never be the same. If that's true of you, you're saved. If that's true of you, you're His people. If that's true of you, you are the bride of Christ. If it's not true of you, friend, be warned. He returns in the future. Not merely as a groom, but as a conquering king with a sword no longer strapped to his thigh, 
but in his hand. So what do I do? Pray. Beg. Ask him to open your eyes to the truth of Christ. Until you see Christ as your Savior, you'll never have this kind of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give to all of us the kind of palpable joy that is expressed in this psalm. I pray for the children in this room who grow up in families that go to church, who read their Bibles, and who are around the songs that we sing and hear the sermons that are preached, and who are sitting under the preaching of Your Word Sunday by Sunday. I pray for them. Not that they would be occupied with what boxes do I have to check in order for everyone to be pleased with me. Not at all. But that you would give them an overwhelming sense of joy of Christ as their Savior. That you would give them a deep-seated sense of trust. That you would give them new birth that you would change their hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. I pray that for every person in this room, for any that doubt, that you would open their eyes as you opened Saul on the road to Tarsus. I pray that you would have the scales fall off of their eyes, that they might see and savor Christ as Savior truly. We pray that in this celebration of the Lord's Supper, that you would open our eyes to the realities of Christ's atoning work for us on the cross, that we might see it and savor it in a whole new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.